Hi everyone, this is Joe Huggins with the Rocky Mountain Short Takes podcast on suicide prevention. And today I'm at the Bridging the Divide conference talking with Richard McCown. Richard, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be in this field? Sure. Um, So I'm uh, trained as a clinical psychologist, got my PhD at the University of Arizona. When I was probably my first, you know, particularly striking encounter regarding a suicidal person, I certainly, as a graduate student in practicums, worked with people who were suicidal. But when I was an intern um, at Yale, uh, I lost a patient to suicide. And this was someone who, because of his past history of suicidal behavior, uh, knew was at high risk. He had been hospitalized. I was actually gone for a week uh, to go back and defend my dissertation. So I left Connecticut, went back to Arizona, and then when I returned, uh, when when I returned to Connecticut, I found out that um, uh, this man that I've been working with had been discharged from the hospital, and two days later, had taken a massive overdose of tricyclic antidepressants and had died. That was my first exposure, certainly, to losing someone to suicide. It also um, really highlighted for me something that I learned a lot more about later, which is that the period after being discharged from an inpatient unit is one of the most critical times in someone's care. In fact, in the, uh, it was the Valenstein et al. Uh, study of about a million veterans who had been treated for depression, the time of highest risk um, in terms of the, their entire time in treatment for mental health was in the period after inpatient discharge. So that for me, that was a very striking learning. And then I, um, after my internship, I went to work in community mental health. I worked in a uh, hospital-based community mental health system and doing outpatient uh, therapy. And uh, then I was the director of a psychiatric emergency service. And then later I was the um, clinical director for the community mental health center. And so in all of those roles, of course, we were working with uh, many people at risk for suicide and the importance of having a coordinated approach, but also a more effective approach, was something that was very much on my mind, uh, trying to figure out how can we do better for all the people that we're seeing who are at risk for suicide. So that was some of the background that um, uh, led me from going from the community mental health realm uh, to uh, working um, on suicide prevention for the federal government as I am now. One of the things that I find really interesting in your description or in telling us about how you got here, having a patient die, talking about that and knowing about uh, the Zero Suicide Initiative, how that systems approach must be very different than perhaps how you experienced things with earlier when when you lost that patient. Is that at all right? 
Yes. Um, well, when I was in training, one of the things that was most striking to me was even though I was working with people who were suicidal, and this is an experience that's not uncommon for m mental health professionals when they're in training, I was never uh, exposed to any suicide prevention training, either as a graduate student or as, um, as an intern. And I often will, will say when I'm giving talks, the only, the only lecture that I ever heard about suicide during my entire graduate career, including my internship training, was the one that I gave because I had a psychopathology professor who said, pick a topic, present to the class. And I presented, I picked suicide and presented on that to the class. That was it. You know, so there was no time when systematically went through the components of, of suicide risk assessment or uh, discussed therapeutic approaches for working with somebody who was, who was uh, suicidal. That was just not incorporated into the training at all. And that's clearly a problem because I think it is much more, you're much more likely to be anxious if you haven't received any kind of, of, of training in any area. And so when I was in practice in community mental health, I was much more attentive to try to make sure that everyone who was working for me was trained and really that we had systems to support the clinician. So a key part of zero suicide, I think it's important to understand, is that it's really designed to try to provide the individual clinician with the supports they need to do more effective suicide prevention work and not to, as happens too often, leaving the clinician on their own, having to do probably the most difficult thing in suicide prevention and what I mean by that is the most difficult thing in suicide prevention is to know for sure whether somebody in the days ahead is going to try to kill themselves. Now, we can assess risk, and we have ways of doing that, but ultimately we're very much dependent on what somebody is willing to tell us and on the relationship we establish with them and on their willingness to collaborate with us in keeping them safe. Um, Zero suicide is really a way of trying to array around an individual clinician, work, typically working in an organized setting, supports about how to approach working with someone who is suicidal so that they're not feeling like they have to be kind of in it alone. You know, we have data, and I said we, I shouldn't, it's really act, the Action Alliance has data, um, from about 30 to 40,000 mental health clinicians, and about half of them say they feel like they don't have the training, the supervision, and the support to work with suicidal people. Now, of course, our whole kind of public health model for suicide prevention is to identify people at risk and to get them in mental health care. So we need to be sure that those people feel competent to have conversations about suicide and that they would know what steps to take. Now, when I say know what steps to take, that doesn't mean that in a zero-suicide organization that it would never lose somebody to suicide because a clinician can do give very good care, and it's possible that someone might still die, tragically. Um, but when those 
if those circumstances happen, it's essential that we take a careful look and to see what we can learn, you know, and by having protocols. So someone, if, if you have a protocol about what should be done, and if you look at the zero suicide components about doing screening and risk assessment, doing a collaborative safety plan, having evidence-based care, staying in contact, if you're doing all those things that are part of that protocol and still lose someone to suicide, which, it, which is, is, is possible, it's really important that clinician be given support and assistance. We know people, we know that sometimes a clinician may lose someone to suicide and leave the field. And so we want to provide them with support, but while at the same time taking a careful look at the circumstances surrounding the death, not to make, not to point fingers of blame, right? Not to look for a scapegoat, but rather to understand were there any other things that we as a system could have done differently? What can we learn? And the feeling is that, you know, we owe it to those that we've lost and to their families and to their loved ones and friends. Uh, anytime that there's a loss by suicide, to take a close look at it and to see if there's something we can learn to do better. Suicide prevention is far too challenging to kind of think that we have it down and kind of just rest on on an an easy solution about what to do. We need to constantly be approaching it from a framework of trying to improve quality and learning. And that's part of the spirit of a just culture that is important in zero suicide. At the Henry Ford Healthcare Center, where the zero suicide initiative was really started, they put a great emphasis on, again, on systematic attention throughout the whole organization to support the individual clinician in the work that they were doing, to give them the tools and help that they needed, and to look at, at people, deaths and attempts that may have taken place, but to do it within the framework of a just culture. I was just talking with Ursula Whiteside. One of the things he um, talked about is this idea that we're all in this together, where it's a team approach. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, I think that we're all in it together on a number of different levels. And when you look at it from the perspective of a healthcare system, no matter what your role is, there's a need for mutual support and collaboration. And that means a level of engagement from the individual clinician, but also from managers. I had the experience. I was the manager for an outpatient department as well as for for our emergency service. We obviously worked closely um, with uh, our psychiatrists and consulted frequently about uh, situations where there might be risk, trying to always do a careful balancing of risk. You know, so it's generally been considered that consultation is, is an essential part of caring for a suicidal person. You try to minimize trying to go it alone uh, because you always want to be able to have those kinds of discussions and consultations or uh, you know, presentations. In addition, one of the things that I think has been really important in suicide prevention over the last couple of years has been the... Um, increased emphasis on including the voices of people with lived experience so that we can hear from them how they experience the care and treatment we're trying to uh, provide. 
that's very important because ultimately it's much more challenging to prevent somebody's suicide if they're not working with us. So those are, those are really important areas. And when we think about trying to prevent suicide among larger groups of people, let's say all of the veterans in a given community, then we, we all have to work together. There have to be multiple, you know, the, um, the, the various kinds of places and, and sectors that may come in contact, you know, whether it's the faith community, the workplace, schools, colleges, et cetera, you know, that, as well as the healthcare systems, we all have a role to play. The National Strategy for Suicide Prevention uh, urges a comprehensive approach, and we think that that's what's really needed in order to reduce suicide nationally, which is obviously what we're aiming for. We want to reduce suicide among all Americans, and, uh, and we certainly want to reduce suicide among Americans' veterans. And we will have links to all of those resources that that you've mentioned and other resources to accompany this podcast. Here at the Bridging the Divide conference, you've given the uh, an afternoon keynote. You've got dinner to go to, so I don't want to take up any much more of your time. Is there anything you'd like to close with? Well, I think that probably the thing that I would want most to close with is to express gratitude to all of the clinicians who are working with people who are at risk for suicide and who are having those conversations and being willing to listen to the pain that suicidal people are going through and trying to help them through it, as well as my admiration for the courage of the people who are going through such pain and are willing to share that with others, where we then have an opportunity to provide help and hopefully to save lives. Well, that wraps it up for this week's Short Takes podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you visit us again. In the meantime, think about giving us a review on Apple's iTunes, and we'll see you next time for more on Short Takes on Suicide Prevention. Mm -hmm.